Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California, this is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael, and today we're so excited to have on the show all the way from Glastonbury, at least by Zoom, Georgina Sarah Armstrong-Smith, and she is a priestess of Avalon and has for over two decades been dedicated to this path as a full-time priestess, living in and around Glastonbury and Magical Avalon for over 30 years. As a priestess, she conducts hand fasting, rites of passage, baby namings, and other pagan rituals and ceremonies. But she's also a teacher, a karmic astrologer, a tarot reader, and a spiritual counselor. She has just a wonderful, well-rounded background. We're very excited to get to know all about her. But before we get started, Michael has a few announcements. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to our broadcast, and we're happy to have you guys with us. We love all of you. Um, we've got some great guests coming up. This is a very magical month because uh, after today, we have Sandra Inman from Australia, who is our witch friend from over there, and then Jackie Smith, uh, owner of Coventry Creations that makes those amazing spell candles and so forth, and she's just released a new book, and we'll be talking about that. And so all of that coming up this month and the next month, we're going to have a show on cryptoids and all kinds of cool stuff. So please join us for all of it. And you get all the information on our website, sixcentsociety.com, S-I-X-T-H, all spelled out. And while you're there, if you can afford to, buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi. It helps us cover a bit of our production cost and we do appreciate it. But we plan on just doing this for you guys. We love it and we love the people we're meeting and we're just having so much fun with it. So we are not planning on stopping the show anytime soon. Uh, and thank you to all of you who do reach out and make nice comments. And those of you, you go to YouTube, click subscribe and like. That's one of the best things you can do to help us. And it doesn't cost a thing, and it makes us feel good, and it definitely gets YouTube's attention. So do that for us. That's it. We'd appreciate it. So I'm not going to take up too much more of your time. I want to get right into the topic. So I'm going to kick it back to you, Krista. So take it away, Krista. Great. Thank you, Michael. And welcome, Georgina. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, we found out about you through one of our dedicated audience members. So I'm just going to thank her. She knows who she is for recommending you, and she recommended you highly. Thank you. <laughs> Isn't that nice? <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> Secret admirers. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I can see why. You have a very rich background. Um, but I, I did want to start with, uh, because it's so unique to you that you are not only a, a priestess of Avalon, but you have lived for long periods of time in a very mythical, magical area. And so I, I'm curious as to how you got involved or became, became this a priestess, first of all, even though I know you've done some other things before that. We'll get to those as well. Well, um, I was sent to a convent school by my mother and it took me three years to get expelled but I finally managed it <laughs> and I decided that the church definitely wasn't for me but I enjoyed 
learning about it, which uh, made me explore other things. But in the meantime, having a dysfunctional mother, I guess I was always looking for that mother role. And sort of when I stumbled across the goddess, um, there she was. She was mother. And um, I was very happy to dedicate my life to her. Now, did you find you were drawn to a specific aspect of the goddess or just as an overall concept? I think actually overall concept because she's in everything that we do. We touch everything that grows. She's in nature. She's inside of us. And so overall. And were you... The whole works. Were you um, living as a child in the Glastonbury area? Are you from that area or you were born in another area of the UK? I was born in the old city of London, uh, literally the square mile of London that was originally the very, very ancient London. And so I am a Londoner, um, but I have not really lived there. As I said, I was at um, different schools, like boarding schools all over the place. And so... I moved down here about 35 years ago. And and what drew you to the area to move there? Well, I came here to be part of the goddess movement. And then when the training started, um, I did my training. And normally to become a priestess of Avalon, it just takes three years. You can be a priestess of goddess in one year. But I, I did six years training. And so... Yes, I, I I really went into it big time. And uh, yes, and you see my little moon, which is on my forehead, which is uh, my dedication. Is, is that a tattoo then? It's a tattoo. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a dedication to put anything on your face, you know, because everybody yeah, can see yes, it. Yes, the tattoo is... The tattooist sent me away for a year and said, I want you to think about it before beforehand. And I said, I've already thought about it, but I'll do that. But I still came back and had it done. <laughs> so now, so there is a training to become the priestess of Avalon. And um, what is uh, that training? Is it a school there? Uh, does it have more than one location? No, it's based here in Avalon in Glastonbury. It can be done by correspondence course um i guess they probably will be setting up zoom like everybody else um but it is very much um something you have to commit to it's not something you can just do for a hobby or just pick up because it is quite life-changing and when you do it you do it with commitment and dedication so do they have like a process, like I know, like, for instance, the Boda people, they have a little bit, it's not really a screening process, it's more like, you know, what are your reasons for wanting to join and, you know, just to get a sense of what people's intentions are. Do they have something like that? Yes, because, um, you know, they have to ask the questions. They don't want, well, I'd say they don't want just people who are jumping on that Disney bandwagon, if you like. Sorry, no disrespect to Disney. Disney. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, but um, it's, yes, they, they, they need to know that people are going to be doing it for the right reasons. 
And you have to do it for the right reasons because when you've dedicated, that's when your real work begins because you have to be responsible for self. It's not like a church where you can go to church on Sundays and uh, you know what you have to do. There's everything in the Bible. There's a guide there that tells you. Um, When you embrace spirituality, it's totally down to you as to how you behave and interact. You could ask 20 different pagans in Glastonbury what spirituality means to them and you'll get 20 different answers. And that's how it should be. It's a very individual face and nobody's there to tell you what's the right and the wrong way of doing things. So, yes, it's, it is certainly something that you have to take responsibility for. And... In this day and age, I always say that the three new deadly sins are um, projection, procrastination and denial. And I think that that's one of the biggest problems that, you know, the 21st century has to deal with with people. That's a good point. And I I can see all of them being very um, valid, not just spiritually, but even for people just living an authentic life, like, you know, Mm -hmm. procrastinating, for instance, when they don't really need to. Um, I think that that's a really astute way of, of seeing the, the deadly sins of the modern era. Uh, I'm curious as to, um, so the, the training you did six years. So is there, uh, was there something extra that you did because of the six years that other people, since, since you said you could do it in three years, or did you just take your time? Uh, and then no, I did, I, you're sorry. Um, I did it in three. I did in three years. Everybody can do the three years, and you become a priestess of Avalon. But there are extra years if you want to do them. So I did the esoteric healing. I also took on a project to do where I have to take the goddess out into the world and be seen to do something um, to engage other people in the knowledge of the goddess. So there were various different things that I had to do, different tasks. I I love that. That's really fascinating. And and how long has that school been going? The the temple's been open 25 years. It's just celebrating. And I think the training now has been going on for about 20 years, I think. Yeah. And the goddess conference has been going on for about 24 years, coming up 24 years. That's wonderful. So it was, in a way, it sounds like it was a little bit ahead of some of the, well, I mean, there was a lot during like maybe 25 years, there was, of course, some of the the goddess movement was forming, but it seems like it's been around longer than, you know, some of the other movements with the goddess and has some depth in it. The the founder is Kathy Jones. Uh, It was her creativity and insight to have a temple and it is actually a registered by law place of worship and it can hold wedding official weddings uh, recognized place of weddings so it is um, the first goddess temple in northern well in the northern hemisphere in that period of time wow that's really amazing so can people come for services that are just interested in the goddess then and want to you know just see what it's like is that what some of the things that the temple offers to just the public uh the temple's open um every day of the year and 
people can come in and meditate, have healing. They can uh, be smudged and cleansed. They can sit and cry. They can sit and laugh. You know, it's it's a very interactive place. Um, but yes, I think that the the temple itself is probably one of the most well-known places in Glastonbury, apart from the tour and the chalice as well. Well, yeah, Glastonbury is one, it's certainly because of the lore, the history, the myth, the legends, the Arthurian angle is is certainly, and also incredibly beautiful. The, the you know, any place that has buildings with such rich architecture, I think, draws people in. And, and it must be really um, wonderful to live in an area that supports your spiritual practice like that. I, I would say you must have had more chances to have these organic experiences with, you know, because most pagans would agree that land is just a big deal in nature. And, and so I'd like to sort of like hear some of your uh, observations of having lived so long in that area and practiced and been dedicated to uh, a practice that, that is supported by the area. I think if one gives submits and surrenders to the environment that supports you, I find that uh, spiritually it's very feeding and also it opens up your psyche and you have very incredible spooky moments um, that happen all the time. And that's because you're in tune with with it and you're not fighting against it. People do come to Glastonbury and they think they can have a quick fix of, you know, um, their vegan meal and 10 minutes meditation and light an incense stick. And then they go home puffing glitter and happy all the way home. Whereas um, people who come here to live really experience quite an abrasive reaction because it's called the Isle of Glass. And what happens is that the glass reflects you back. And so it's like the oracle in Delphi saying, know thyself. And it goes, wham, right in your face. (laughs) And you really have to get to grips with yourself. Otherwise, you run for the hills and never come back to Glastonbury. Or you you stay for the whole journey and it is a journey i mean the locals say we take it in turns to wear the straight jackets and the white coats (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny i've seen the same thing with the masonic ritual um people get their first degree initiation um and then a lot of them just kind of get smacked in the sense all the stuff that they really have been putting off that they haven't been facing and dealing with suddenly just sort of they have this crisis moment where they have to kind of get their stuff together and and clean up all that that mess and i've seen that happen so many times it's it's just it's really amazing when that that moment happens where they have to like you said face themselves and deal with their stuff and you know that they've been trying to avoid and in the end it's a good thing it kind of is a cleansing but it's a it could definitely be traumatic for people for sure well, I think it, it just sort of brings them up short to sort of say, oh, I can't pin it on something else. I have to take responsibility for myself. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that humans have to face sometimes is taking responsibility for themselves. It's the I. You know, I always, as a as a psychotherapist, I'm always saying to people, no, don't say they or it, it's I. <laughs> 
That's an excellent point. I, I think there's no way around it. Uh, no matter what tradition you go into, uh, you have to go in. I've always loved that know thyself. And I mm. came across that, the Delphic Oracle, as one of the the things they said. And then also because my early years, I was really influenced by Buddhism, which is taking, you have to take full responsibility. And there's no way around it in Buddhism, at least the one I was taught. Uh, but I wanted to get back to something you said earlier that kind of caught caught my mind was that you had to do a project out in the world, um, bring the goddess to the people. And I was wondering what you actually did. Um, I did a, a huge uh, tour. Um, it, it's no secret that my background was in travel and tourism. So I, I naturally led to doing tours of sacred sites. So I publicized it worldwide. And we had uh, about 40 people come from all over the world and come on this tour which was about the island Stonehenge Avery down to Cornwall so it was quite a big deal quite a big tour so wow it's a lot a lot of responsibility I can imagine that's a lot yeah Mm -hmm. that's a big organization project so so I'm curious as to in Glastonbury what are some of your are there some favorite areas that you particularly respond to as a person I love the tour, um, but it's a bit chaotic up there at the top of the tour. Uh, You've got some really chaotic energy, but it it, it is nice to go up there on a full moon. It's it's beautiful. Um, I remember walking up one night and it was clear as anything. You could see everything. The grass even looked green and I couldn't see the tower. The tower was missing. And I was about two feet from it. And all of a sudden it came into sight. It was absolutely gone. There was no, I was walking up before the tower had been built. Yeah. Wow. That was quite an amazing experience. That sounds amazing. Yeah, but things like that always happening to me. But yes, it's, uh, I love the chalice well. I do a lot of hand fastings in the chalice well. That's very beautiful. And Bride's Mound is also lovely. So we're very blessed with some very beautiful spots here. Yeah, it seems like that too. And and so when when you became the the priestess in the f- the first three years, are you able to do the ceremonies for people after that three year period? If people want to be hand fasted or have baby naming ceremonies, or is that something particular you you choose to do if you're in the training? Um, the second year is about the practical. You you learn about oracling and channeling and uh, all the ceremonial work. So that's what you do in the second year. And then really after that, you can conduct uh, ceremonies. Yes, it, it and there's it, such beautiful things to do. I bet it seems, I mean, we were hand-fasted in um, Nova Scotia, and we, we picked our own person and everything. But it seems like that has become more, I don't know, more people do it in the last 20 years. Is that your experience? Yes, I, I suppose I'm very much aware there's a lot of people who do hand fastings in Glastonbury just purely for the type of place that it is. But everybody does them differently. And that's the most beautiful thing about it. Nobody sort of does the same thing. And each hand fasting I've I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and everyone is different 
And I think that because it's led by the couple and their energy mm-hmm. and their input and their wants and needs. And I think the day that I start to sound the same is the day I stop because it's got to be fresh every time. And I don't script anything either. So it's all channeled. I love that. And and that was one of the things that one reason I wanted to do it too. We wrote our own ceremony and we, you know, basically did it exactly the way we wanted to. And it was very simple, but really wonderful. And um, it was perfect. You know, I, I have to say, I, I think it was, I, even as a little girl, I never wanted, I never wanted a big wedding. It was odd. I never imagined it. I just knew I wasn't going to have that. <laughs> and I, I didn't have, at that point, I was not very, uh, I would say I was creative, but I was not necessarily, you know, interested in the goddess or anything like that. Some people are when they're very young. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I think they, they and I, I've been to one other one before us that our friends had been hand fast. It was very unique to them and beautiful. And I love that. That is nice that it's so unique, but I, I suppose that means you as a priestess have to be very comfortable with, you know, being in the moment and listening to what people need. Oh, totally. And I think even more so when I'm doing them outside of Glastonbury, because I travel all over the world doing them. So it, sometimes, you know, you come out of the bubble of Glastonbury, because it is a bubble, and you go to Middle England, and, um, you know, people are looking at you. I think that, I swear they expect me to turn up in a pointed hat and a black coat, and then open the cloak, and I'm not wearing anything. You know, it's all these bizarre ideas that they (laughs) Googled at some point, and have got it completely wrong. (laughs) But it's quite fun. There's a lot of humour and laughter and fun, but it's a very, very sacred and personal uh, ceremony that's very lasting and very beautiful. I love that. I didn't know you'd done so many. So that that's really um, very unique because, you know, there are people I think that have, I've met that have hand fasted, but they don't necessarily do a whole lot of it, it seems like. So you seem to be really connected to what you're doing in terms of your spiritual path to be, you know, welcome to do it all over the world even. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love taking that knowledge everywhere. So I know that your background includes, yeah, you are a karmic astrologer. You've also been reading tarot many, many years. Uh, I was first wanted to ask you what your um, what you mean by karmic astrologer. I'm I'm an astrologer fan, and I research for just for fun for myself. And so I, I sort of like, ooh, karmic astrology. You know, I know what some people do, but what what do you mean by karmic astrology and how do you look at the chart that's more karmic? Well, uh, first of all, I hand-draw charts, which is a dying breed of astrologers, but I do love creating them by hand. And it's they're, they're created in the same way as any other chart is done, but how I look at it is what challenges and patterns you've brought into this lifetime and what you've come to change. And by doing that, I can see where you've been, who you've been and what you've done or haven't done and what your challenges were. And so often you find that they're being repeated again in this lifetime and the common theme is that they've come back to change that particular thing whether they've been silenced lost their control or their authority or not being able to uh, 
reach their best possible self or have their own belief even. So there's lots of different reasons why people have um, the charts done and read. But yeah, in the first five years I've been reading them, I've never had one wrong. May I share a story with you? Oh, please, yes. Um, I was doing this chart for this lady not too long ago and I said, you've got a lost sibling. And she said, no, I'm an only child. So I said, no, you've got a lost sibling. So I said, there's a child that hasn't come to term or has been adopted. Um, There's something here. So she said, no, my mother's never said anything. So I said, well, they were a very secretive generation. If If you find the right moment and you think your mother might be responsive, ask her. So she rang me two days later, and she said, I asked my mother. I said, oh, yes. She said she had a child out of wedlock before she got married, and it went up for adoption. So I said, right, okay. I'll go tingly every time I say this. And so I said, so are you going to do anything? So she said, yes. And she rang me about three, four months later, and she said, I've I've tracked my half-brother down, and I've reunited him with my mother. Oh, that's such a great story. That's amazing. No, I love I know, that. But that's, that's how accurate these charts can be. You know, she was quite determined. She was an only child, and I could have crumbled and said, oh, okay, then. But, you know, it's about sticking with your belief and what you see and right. believing it was right. You are a dying breed in terms of doing the, the chart by hand, but I, I respect that a lot. I think I think any professional astrologer should at least do it some of the time, like the first year, because it just seems like it's it's like you get more understanding by doing that, you know, just taking the time to learn the, the mathematical side. And, and of course, uh, when I was, my first chart I, I had uh, in terms of going to someone, everybody did that. That was in the, the late... 70s I went to an astrologer and so everybody did it by hand then mm. and uh, it is it is a dying thing for yeah. sure so I'm curious like in the karmic astrology do you have a, a particular house system you like to use um when you cast a chart do you use like a placidus house system or a whole equal house system no placidus placidus mm-hmm. I, I yeah. went to a, a, a sort of um, quandary around that uh, because I'd always been reading using Placidus. So for a while, I, I I listened to the whole house system idea. I listened to so many videos about the different house system, and then I I did you know what I did was I compared my chart whole house, and it di- it just didn't work as well in the whole house, mm-hmm. uh, even though. You get rid of interceptions, which are I have in my chart, which have always been a bit of a quandary for me because not a lot of people write about interceptions and not a lot of people tell you about them. So um, I, I said, okay, fair enough. I know these things happened in this particular event. Let's see which one represents it more. And it was, for me, the Placidus. So I, I did work it out, but I, I didn't want to just assume, you know, Placidus. No, no, you're right. I mean, it is about... Um, exploring all possibilities and unless you do it you don't understand the totality of it but no i prefer the placidus you know there's a lot to be said about the different cusps and and also the the decants where where the cusp lands so it's important 
Now, in your opinion, as an astrologer, do you find that the north and south nodes are important in understanding the karmic intentions of the person? Yes, we do, because obviously for us, the, the, you know, the North Node is our step forward in this lifetime, but the South Node is the cup of knowledge that we bring with us, that we remember. And it's it because they're always in opposition, sometimes, you know, we can hold ourselves back um, through our own fears that we hold in that cup of knowledge. So that's where some of the challenges are. And it obviously shows where we're supposed to be taking in that footstep forward so yeah along with I also use asteroids quite a lot so I use Lilith I use Vesta I use Juno and Chiron so it adds a little bit more flavor to the story so with Lilith I always I'm a little confused there seems to be different Liliths in in astronomy and so how do you determine the most significant like black moon Lilith or I don't know I've just come across because I'm not an expert on Lilith um, but I've seen there's more than one version of Lilith yeah in fact there's four because you've you've got the black moon Lilith then you've got sort of certain aspects points in space Um, you've got um, what they deem as the invisible moon of the moon and you've also got Aegol which is a fixed star that is often called Lilith because it's evil that's what it's been called evil so and of course they think Lilith is evil which of course we know is not true Mm -hmm. Um, so yes I I find that Lilith stands for me uh, in the charts when I interpret it. It's freedom, independence, equality, and she doesn't need anybody else's approval. So, but her own. Very autonomous. Yes, yes, she's very tough. You know, but it took a lot for her to leave Adam, you know, and she was his first wife. And, um, yes, so it's it's quite interesting to know her story properly. Mm. I agree with that. I I actually first came across uh, that version of Lilith through a poet. I think her name's Enid Dame. And she Mm -hmm. had a whole book on the Lilith that we've come to see more. And it was very, really witty and interesting. And I just came, I was like going to a poetry reading. I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. I never knew this about Lilith, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I think we're rediscovering different aspects of the goddess, you know, over the last 20 years that have been you know, projected as evil and they're not. They're, they're often strong or, you know, just wrongly accused of things. Well, I think she, she represents that woman who has been damned in life, you know, whether the, the, the archetypal witch, the cunning woman um, who was put to death uh, for being evil um, because it was against the church's teachings. So... You know, that she stands for a lot of women in a lot of ways, you know, whether it's abuse as well. Um, so, yeah, she's, she's pretty cool, I think. <laughs> well, definitely the way you describe her, I totally agree as well. You know, like I said, I, I, my, my sort of uh, archetype I was drawn to was the Morgan um, in terms of looking at some a, a strong sort of goddess figure for myself, but uh, I've always also appreciated Lilith, and I have a lot of friends that really, um, really embrace Lilith. It's Vesta I have to work really hard with. 
because I mean she's um, she's the protectress of of hearth and home, but she never took the physical form because she said the physical form would corrupt. So she only took the phys- the, the the physical form of flame, and that that's all she took. That's why her fires were kept alight. Uh, 24-7, 365 days of the year. But she she never took sides. She never made any, took, gave any advice. She would she'd sit on the fence. She would just be this pure flame. So I've got Vesta and I've got Lilith. So you can, and I love Lilith. So I really have to work hard with Vesta because she is so goody two-shoes. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's a big contrast with Lil. So, so in I've you know I I don't quite understand Vesta myself in terms of the interpretation because I I long ago I got this um there was a woman that that sent a computer report of twelve asteroid goddesses and sort of where they were in your chart and it was really actually very helpful and Vesta was one obviously and I just didn't quite grasp what she means in a chart, like, you know, protector of the home and hearth, but I didn't know. Lilith, you can kind of, even just listening to you, you can kind of get a grasp right away of, oh, yeah, Lilith, you know. Well, she she makes sacrifices. Um, So where she's in your chart, it may be where you've sacrificed yourself for something or somebody in in the past, and depending on what's around it, you you know, you may have been a priestess uh, to Vesta, and consequently, priestesses didn't last very long because although they were taken into uh, the temple at the age of seven and had to serve for 30 years, very few of them got to 30 years because they were either raped or uh, they fell in love, all which was punishable by death. So it was, you know, pretty precarious <laughs> job to have. Mm-hmm. I remember reading in one of the Delphic Oracle books that at one point, uh, because of some of those reasons, they only wanted older women to be oracles to protect, you know, the younger women having these other issues. At least that was one of one historian I I read. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I, I can totally understand that. I mean, they were fair game, you know, because. Uh, <laughs> People would want a virgin, and there weren't that many around, I guess. Well, there aren't now, really. (laughs) (laughs) Problem solved. (laughs) They can can retire at the age of 30 and marry. Mm. So apparently they were very sought after because 30-year-old virgin, you know, or 37-year-old virgin it would have been. Mm. Uh, What I find uh, interesting and, and really good about it sounds like the training that you receive as a priestess is um, my understanding of the history of the priestess is she serves the community in some way from small ways to obviously if if someone was a true high priestess, they would have a lot more responsibility. And there are people in at least the United States, I'll say that just take that title. And to me, it's very dismissive of the hard work people have put in to become a priestess in whatever tradition they have. And I'm, I'm certainly open to even people providing new traditions. It's, it's a training, it's a service. And, and, and we've talked about it for some of the shows of people respecting the titles that they have in a sense, not just kind of saying, I'm priestess this because I feel like it. 
<laughs> no, no I, I agree with you because it is very easy to to stick on, stick on a headdress and do your dedication and then that's done and dusted um as i said that's when the true work starts to begin and i believe in putting into the community um something of myself so i support um abused men and women and children and you know collect shoe boxes filled with necessary emergency stuff when they have to flee in the middle of the night and they have something like a little kit for them to get started and it shows that somebody cares about them so yes it, it, you know i i call that modern 21st century priestessing mm -hmm. and that's how it should be you know helping with food banks uh i don't know you have those in America. yes so um helping with food banks and, and such like so or giving because uh, i'm a psychotherapist i give uh, very very low cost um um counseling to those that need it so yeah so i, I try and give my time that's wonderful and, and that's that's about being a modern day priestess. Yes. You know, it, it's not just wearing a headdress and call, giving yourself a title. It's about earning it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And again, and it's it's uh, to me, it's also respect for the traditions behind it, where where all kinds of women did that, and sometimes even more vigorously than we have to today, because we we have more choices for one thing. You know, I think that's mm -hmm. part of it. Uh, so now I also know that you have been a tarot card reader for many, many years. And so how did you first get interested in that? Um, I think I was about 19. Um, and my stepsister's girlfriend used to read it. And she gifted me my first pack. And it's the pack I still use. Uh -huh. And, you know, so, you know, I'm... 69 now so you can do the maths <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's a long time ago and I just yeah it people often ask me to do the astrology and the tarot and I say well the, the, the astrology is more scientific because the planets are where they are um with the tarot it can be a bit fuzzy around the timeline, but sometimes intuitively a lot more comes through. So, you know, I'll do both for them if they want to, but nine times out of ten, roughly the same message comes through. <laughs> Well, I, I think yeah, that's, I like the tarot. that's that's true of um, since we we read tarot for a living, too. And we've noticed that like somebody will say, oh, my astrologer said that similar thing or my numerologist, because if you're doing your oracle work, you're drawing from the same source in a sense. Maybe you're expanding on an area, but it's it's good if some of the things are consistent. We feel, OK, we're tapping in really well today, you know. Uh, and that's what I that's what's interesting, because, you know, we we don't even know these people and you get that feedback a lot from people saying that. And uh, I think um, that the tarot, uh, what I think is interesting is people like cards and they relate to cards on so many levels. You know, I'm sure you've heard the argument about, you know, was tarot, you know, meant to be a game or not. And to me, it, it, it is a game. It, it is it's cards and there's nothing wrong with that 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 playfulness that sense that we are comfortable with cards because we've grown up with cards almost everybody has grown up with some form of card game 
I think also they're very visual that the person you're reading for can see them and understand what they're what well, not what they're looking at exactly but they understand the pictures and not that necessarily that's what they're meaning but nevertheless they think they understand the pictures um whereas when you've got a chart in front of you unless they're an astrologer themselves they're completely boggled um as to what they're looking at and i try not to be what i call astro babble um you know because i think it's on a need to know basis and i will tell them what they want to hear about their chart rather than you know necessarily always the degrees and this and that and the technical information because it's not going to mean anything to them unless they're an astrologer what they want to know was who, who were they in the past life and why and and what have they got to do in this lifetime so yeah, that's absolutely true. We are very visual and people respond to the images and the colors and the cards. I, I met an astrologer yeah. once years ago and she she thought there should be a way to also show and maybe there will be someday the 3D aspect of a chart. And she was I forget her theories. She was really it was really interesting, though. And, and it was only it was like in the 90s, too, before a lot of the technology has advanced and and I think that's one thing you're right about. The chart looks so flat, but it isn't, of course. It's in, and it's very complicated. Layers, layers, layers. Right. Yes. But mm-hmm. but we're we're visual creatures for sure. Your subconscious mind might get a, a message from one card even mm. that's specific to you, even if, like you say, you don't know the specific uh, meanings of it. So so that they are they're definitely different tools. I'm curious as to which what deck you have is it a specific you deck you're gonna ask me that <laughs> <laughs> of course you have the same deck for so many years <laughs> yes it is well it's the top deck and that's the one i teach ah that that has become my my deck of preference over the years um because it's so visually stunning and and uh i get a lot from it it's it's just mm. one of those things that um, and yet there are other, I've probably, there's about half a dozen decks I've read with before. And there's, cer- I mean, there's certainly decks you can, you know, read with and it's, it's perfectly fine, but I do like that one a lot. I, I agree. There's so much depth to it. And again, there's so many layers. Um, you know, you can think whatever you like about Crowley, but when he put this together, it was quite a masterpiece. It is, and and I that's how I felt about it from almost the beginning when I heard the history of how long it took Lady Frida Harris mm. to paint the cards and their incredible relationship through letters, which I discovered through Lon Duquette's book, and he put some of their letters in the chapters, and it was delightful to hear her voice, you know, and and that they were both, I think, mature magically, and I think they poured everything into that deck. And, and that, that mm-hmm. you're right, that's what makes it special, too. I think it's funny, too, that, that people often will go on about Crowley being so evil. And he was just an evil person. I can't have a deck by somebody that was that evil. So then they'll pick up a weight deck, not realizing that Wade actually wrote books on black magic. So and it's, a, it's a very funny concept every time I see that. Well, it's, just, it's the same that, that people don't like tarot because it's evil and the church is against it. And it was a priest, Levi, who put the original concept of the tarot together so you know it's lack of education i find with a lot of people it's not necessarily always knowledge but it's it's education um and understanding 
about what we do and how we do it and why we do it. I think, um, you know, if, if we live, if we were now living in the past, we, we would all be witches or cunning women because we all have skills that are magical. We, we are magical. I believe in magic. It's absolutely true. And that one of the um, things about Alistair Crowley is when I started to read just certain books of his, I would be the most unlikely fan of Crowley. I mean, I'm a pretty straight person. I've never done any psychedelics. I probably never will. It's in my chart why I don't do it. <laughs> I was warned by an astrologer, actually. And, um, you know, I fell in love with his when he talks about magic. And in the beginning of magic and theory and practice, he has these theorems. And every time I read them, I just get so excited about magic. And one of his beliefs was that everyone should learn magic and even like bankers and accountants. And he was really, he believed it was for everybody. And mm -hmm. I don't know if people know that about him because I wouldn't have if I hadn't read some of the, the things. He, he wants everyone to know and use magic for themselves in their own way, not to become an Aleister Crowley, but mm. to still be who they are, to be become who they mm. really are within the context of whatever their world is. And mm -hmm. uh, so that's what, what really inspires me about him too, is he's, it's just very contagious when he talks about magic in more of a neutral way, not about, you know, his own life or things like that. And, and uh, I'm, I'm with you. I think magic is very real. I would say almost everyone that's come on the show that's into magic also agrees. <laughs> you know? No, I, th I think magic's all around us. Uh, it's just sometimes we um, don't have our eyes open. You know, we just have to look and it's there. Now, now, from your, you know, sort of viewpoint, whether it's astrologically, whether it's like to a priestess, the state of the world is pretty intense right now. And what do you, what do you think are some of the things that an ordinary person can do? Because I think that sometimes it can be overwhelming to feel you can have an effect when there's so much going on. I agree. And it, it is. I, I think that uh, Pluto kicking his heels in those last a uh, few moments of Capricorn are really, really throwing a lot of dirt up. And um, it is really, really hard at the moment. And I think all we can do is, is send that vibration of love and hope and peace and to keep doing it and to keep sending it. You know, when we found here but when the war broke out in ukraine it was like a great thunder cloud had descended it was really depressing and it took quite some time to sort of clear it over our space because it was like no this isn't how it should be we can send love we can send healing um you know we can send peace and send that vibration out um, and and just pray for everybody. It's 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 not hard, you know. We can all do it. It's interesting. We before the show, we, you mentioned, and uh, I've read the the magical um, battle and the letters of Deanne Fortune. We there's a book, and um, it, it's extraordinary what they did in the midst of bombing, and, and yet it had an impact. 
And, and yeah. I, I think I, having read some of the letters, I was, I knew that that had happened, but I didn't realize the extent and the energy people put into it. It was, it was really amazing. It was. They did it from the top of the tour in Glastonbury, and um, it, it, there were quite a few people. It wasn't just the unfortunate. And yes, it took place at the same time as the Battle of Britain. And, you know, given that we should have been, we were outnumbered, we should never have won that, you know, but we did. Yeah. So, you know, that's the power that we can send out that vibration. And it really does work. I think so, too, particularly as, you know, two people together or small groups or even if you're alone, you can imagine, I think, you know, connecting with other like minds and that would work in my mind. Now, I've I've done distant healing for people. They've felt me sit on their bed. You know, they've felt the depression on their bed. Uh, one said I'd pulled his leg. <laughs> you know, and, and all sorts of uh, other strange things that they felt. And it was it was exactly the same time that I was sending the healing. So it's quite extraordinary how we can have an effect on people. Um, and we don't even have to be in the same room. Absolutely. Now, as a, a practitioner that's associated primarily with the goddess, um, but also because of the area being associated with Arthurian legend. What is your perspective on uh, the wounded king and the wounded male psyche in modern times? We've talked about this in a previous show about that um, Mm. being still important. I'm glad you've actually asked me because um, a very dear friend who's also a priestess of Avalon, Caroline Lear, who's a very brilliant artist who actually painted all the goddesses and they're stunning, absolutely stunning. We're working together for a course next year. In fact, it's going to be a three-year course and it's going to be looking at the Arthurian legend from Percival's point of view. And it's about Percival, who's the young man who goes out and he's fresh. It's like the fool card. And he just goes on this journey uh, willy-nilly and and not really knowing what he does. And it's how it relates to you in your life. And what he has to do is to ask the right questions to restore the wastelands, which are the sovereignty of the female, and to have that balance of the male and the female back. But the sovereignty of the female was the wastelands. So it's where have you been disrespected as a female? Have you been overlooked in promotion? How was your parenting? Was there a son that was favoured over you? And such like. So we're looking at that in Percival's journey and the mischief and the errors that he makes just as we do as we grow up and explore and do things. And with Arthur, um, you know, he is the wounded king and it is about restoring these wastelands so the sovereignty can rise and the king can finally die. Yeah, and I I think that's brilliant that you're doing that because for whatever reason, and I I don't think it's it's intentional, it it seems to be that aspect gets overlooked in the healing um, and the empowerment of the goddess. 
And uh, I mean, I think I came across that idea when I was younger in the Chalice and the Blade book, the, the idea itself, and then talking to some people like you that, that knew more about the Arthurian um, legend. And that sounds fascinating. So I know you, you teach other courses, and I, I think, will that be on your website in terms of if people are interested? And mm-hmm. uh, Yes, I teach uh, astrology. I teach tarot. I can do it by Zoom. It's not a problem. It doesn't have to be in person. And um, yes, and this new course will be in person, but initially, but we are going to be doing it on Zoom as well. Yeah, and I love that it, that Percival is part of it. That's that's very unique, I think. It's a lovely twist on it, and because Caroline is such a beautiful artist, she's going to be painting all the uh, iconic. Um, characters that are in the story and she's actually made a wheel that is of the seasons and his journey as he goes round through the forests and the castles and the wasteland and all his mistakes that he makes but she's going to paint it which then will become a deck of cards and maybe a book so yes that's a big project it is, yes. Sounds yes. exciting. Though. Another project for the goddess. <laughs> <laughs> you never stop working when you're a priestess. <laughs> that is true. I think so. Now, I always like to like ask people that have been on a path for a very long time, what advice you would give to someone that was new on a path in terms of finding their own way, and what what would you, as a you know, with your experience, what would you advise? Often people worry if they are on the right path. And my answer to that is you're always on the right path. And even when it gets, and especially when it gets very difficult, it's definitely the right path because you are supposed to experience those emotions, feelings, or physical challenges, whatever they might be. And that's part of your learning. So don't worry about being on the right path or not. You are on the right path. And trust yourself. Trust your own instinct and have the courage to be able to go with that gut feeling. It always will work for you. I think that's really good advice that you're on the right path because I I get that question from people coming for tarot readings quite a lot. You know, am I on the right mm. path? Can I see if I'm the right path? And I, I love that actually. Mm. It doesn't matter what path you're on; it's the right one, <laughs> <laughs> whether you want it or not. <laughs> it does seem like paths can choose you a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, but it, well, you're still on the right path, even if it's chosen you. It's a bit like a crystal. You know, you've got to work with it, even though it's chosen you. So it's it's about it's about taking the responsibility for yourself and saying, I am on the right path and I am learning from it. And then the other thing uh, I wanted to ask in your own um, view, where do you see at this point the goddess movement moving towards? It's been certainly uh, one of the things I don't think is quite true is the goddess was not completely asleep, but uh, it's okay that people think that I'm okay with that because when you go through back in history that, that the goddess has definitely been in the backdrop the whole time at times. But where do you think, I think there's been enough sort of emphasis and a lot of younger people involved in the goddess movement. Um, so where do you think is the next step for the movement itself, generally speaking? 
Well, I think it's to to take it into the physical world because I often do talks for university students or theological students and I say to them, you know, you're the next generation, the next caretakers of this earth and she is the goddess and it's down to you to look after her and care for her. So I think I'm seeing a lot of young people now getting very, very much involved um, with all the eco-changes and global warming. And I think, you know, without realising it, they're embracing the goddess. And I think that's really imp- important. I think it was Peru that actually gave the goddess uh, the status of being real and that you could um you know they could the goddess could actually take you to court if you mistreated her i love that a kind of slant on it there but um yes i think it's getting your hands dirty and getting in with everything that people need help with uh, whether it's the homeless uh, the abused you know all of them need our help right now you know we're all having a tough time it's not easy uh, prices are going through the roof and uh, people are starving and i think it's just getting your hands dirty rolling up your sleeves and and helping people where you can and i think young people are doing that and I just you know when as I said when I do these talks they go away sort of really buzzed up really you know that 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 it's their responsibility now to look after the earth and she is the goddess and she's having a hissy fit at the moment and she's changing her moods I think that's an excellent point, and I have to agree with you completely that there are these young people. There's one person I follow on uh, Instagram. I forget his name, but he's working with the problem with the plastics in the ocean. He has an invention and has, they're really, it's just amazing. Um, And I don't know what spiritually he is. Uh, It doesn't matter. It's just anyone that's going to do something good for the ocean. To me, I'm going to say, please, please, let's support that, you know. And you're right, just lot of, doing the work. Yeah, A lot of people say, oh, I don't have a belief. And then they tell you what they're doing to help nature and um, to correct the wrongs out in the world. And I said, but, you know, you have. You, you're a very spiritual person. It doesn't have to be, you know, attached to a deity. But you are a spiritual person. And I think also... It's about, it's a bit like Percival's journey uh, and reclaiming the sovereign wastelands and making them whole again and bringing the balance back. And then the old king can die. And but in that space, we have to have a balance of masculine and feminine, just as there's the Amanos and Amalea inside of us or some one side stronger than the other, but we have to find that balance of the masculine and feminine. And we do have to work with it because we do really speak different languages at the moment. Mm, absolutely. And, and also even politically, there's still some things that as women, well, we've just been set backwards in this country and other countries too, that we have to get our hands dirty and say, that's not you know fair, it's not respectful and, uh, you know, gain control of our bodies again. So there, there's definitely a lot of physical, get your hands dirty work. I agree with you completely. Yeah, that's that's what we have to do. And as that's, that's 
what being a priestess is all about. It's not just sitting on the sidelines, um, you know, like Vesta. <laughs> Poor Vesta. <laughs> Poor Vesta. I have to work hard. She's a protectress. <laughs> so I'll embrace her for her protection. Um, but I, you know, you have to embrace Lilith as well, you know, who, who's got the courage to do it. Well, thank you so much, Georgina, for being on the show. It's been delightful and very informative. I've totally enjoyed it. Oh, me too. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure and blessings to to everybody out there who's been listening. And and make sure you, to check her website out. It'll be on our website at sunflowerhealing.co.uk, but it will also be listed on the Success Society website, website always, so you'll be able to find her there. Mm-hmm. And thank mm-hmm. you all for listening in. Join us next time as we continue to explore the esoteric and the obscure together. Have a magical week. <laughs>